0: Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Now, we've never shied away from doing uh, controversial things on controversial topics. Today is definitely going to be one of those episodes. It's not going to be one that necessarily everybody is going to want to listen to or hear, but we feel that it's a fairly important one. Our guest today is somebody who is quite controversial Uh, He has made some very controversial statements. He has led some very controversial legal actions. Uh, And in order to try to get a little bit of better context for where he's coming from as well as to uh, provide some counterpoints to some of the arguments that we're seeing surrounding COVID-19 and the restrictions that have been put in place to try to manage COVID-19, we're sitting down today with John Carpe, who is the president of the uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Now we need to be really, really clear before we roll the interview. Just because we're sitting down and having a conversation with someone doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with any of their points. And as you'll see in the interview, there's a lot of points that we challenged Mr. Carpe on. Unfortunately, he was on a bit of a time restriction. So some of the questions that we really wanted to get answers from, uh, we weren't able to get the, the answers from him on this interview, but he did commit to us that he would sit down with us in the future and have a follow-up conversation uh, to answer some of those questions. So we'd like you to consider this episode as part one, and at some point down the road, hopefully Mr. Carpe will be willing to sit down with us again and do part two. So without further ado, here's our interview with John Carpe. Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Our guest today is no stranger uh, to public discussion uh, and arguably to some public controversy. Uh, he's the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and we are excited to welcome to the show Mr. John Carpe. So, John, thank you so much for being willing to join us today. Be glad to be with you, Nate. Awesome. So we're here obviously to talk about uh, COVID restrictions uh, as as well as some of the other activities that, that you and the JCCF have gotten involved in over the last, it's literally been a year now. Uh, and But before we get into that, if you could just give our, our listeners and our viewers a little bit of context, what is the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and, and what does it try to do?
1: So the Justice Centre is a registered charity. It is a public interest law firm. And our mission is to defend the charter rights and freedoms of Canadians. We do that in two ways. The biggest foremost is through litigation uh, court actions. And uh, secondly, through public education, we, have, we produce uh, columns and papers and studies and reports and legal analyses. Uh, we do a lot of media interviews. And so we seek to educate Canadians about their charter rights and freedoms. And we are 10 years old. We've got uh, 10 staff lawyers, uh, soon to be 11. We're currently looking for to hire another uh, senior litigator. And uh, we're funded entirely by uh, voluntary donations. We've got about uh, 9,000 Canadians from coast to coast that uh, are making it possible for us to, to have the legal team And we provide our services to clients uh, without charge.
0: And for anybody who doesn't know, who is John Carpe?
1: Well, I'm originally from the Netherlands. Uh, I came to Canada when I was seven. I grew up in British Columbia. I have an undergraduate degree in political science from Laval University in Quebec City. And um, I have a law degree from the University of Calgary. I worked previously for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation as Alberta director, and I've been running the Justice Centre for the past 10 years, and uh, I was called to the Bar of Alberta in 1999, so going on, I guess, uh, 22 years that I've been a lawyer.
0: Okay, and is there any particular, I mean, obviously, the the JCCF's focus is Constitutional law. Is there any particular area of practice that you worked in prior to the JCCF becoming a thing?
1: Well, I articled at a, a big law firm in Calgary, uh, known as Code Hunter Whitman. That was uh, that firm doesn't exist anymore. I think they became the Calgary office of Gowling's. And then um, I worked uh, in civil litigation with a small law firm called Rooney Prentice. and that was actually with the late Jim Prentis. Uh, He was one of the two partners there. That law firm also no longer exists. Law law firms are always emerging and merging and disappearing and reappearing. Um, So my, my law background is in civil litigation
0: and constitutional law. So to get into the the we'll call it the COVID conversation for today, um, I've 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 watched a few of your your videos uh, and and but I'm not I don't want to present your arguments for you I want you to you to do that um, so. Uh, full disclosure, just as, as well, so that you're not surprised by anything. I, I do work in healthcare. Uh, I'm a paramedic in Calgary. When I'm not doing this stuff, because this stuff definitely does not pay the bills. Uh, so, just so you know that that's that's out there. It's 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 not not a, a surprise or anything. So, tell me what your concerns are with the current COVID situation um, going on in Alberta as well as uh, any concerns that you've had getting to the point where we are now?
1: Well, I started out uh, not opposing the lockdowns. I thought that back in March of 2020, there were actual facts, or at least there were was a reasonable apprehension of, of harm. And I think it was appropriate back in March for the government to take precautions to say, well, look, you know, we've got Neil Ferguson at Imperial College in London is saying that this is a really, really deadly virus. Uh, this is going to kill millions of people all over the world. Uh, this is going to inflict permanent health damage on large numbers of young people. So it's very different. It's, it's not, uh, this this isn't a virus that just targets the elderly as the annual flu does each year, but this is a really different virus. It's far more deadly and it's going to hurt a lot of young people and you know, under those circumstances, uh, I kind of thought, okay, you know, let's uh, let's take some precautions. We didn't know back then that uh, COVID does not spread amongst children. We didn't know that children are uh, not threatened by COVID. Very un- Real
0: quick. Sure. Pat. When you say that 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 uh, COVID is not spread by children, um, I I have to ask, what's your your source for data for that? Because everything that i've seen including the information that's been presented by the cdc as well as john hopkins and i could go on a long list is that uh while kids are not necessarily at as high risk as uh elderly people or people with with comorbidities uh they certainly are capable of spreading the virus so if if i have, i have to ask what your source is for that Right,
1: well, you've, you've got a better grasp on the details of, of the, uh, the medical side of things. The expert uh, witnesses in our court actions, we filed one in Alberta, one in Manitoba, uh, their expert reports review the, the medical literature and uh, they, they say that based on the, the medical literature, uh, children are not spreaders of the disease. Uh, when children do have it, it's because they got it from their parents. And then looking at Alberta Health Services, uh, you've got, you know, 96%, I mean, the number changes from month to month, but not 96% of the uh, people who, who died with COVID are age of 60 and over. And you've got more than two thirds uh, that are age of 70 and over. So it is um, it is a virus that the, the people who are most at risk are elderly people who are already sick with cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and then COVID will shorten their life by, you know, four months or 12 months or eight months. Those are the people that should be scared. Uh, the rest of the population, statistically, you are, uh, it's more dangerous to drive a car. Uh, your, your chance of getting killed in a car accident is bigger than your chance of dying of COVID. And I'm basing that just on the government statistics, taking them at, at face value.
0: Okay. I just need to be really clear for, for our, our listeners and our viewers that the, the medical evidence that we've seen, uh, and certainly the medical evidence that's presented by the World Health Organization, the CDC, Johns Hopkins, the, there's a couple of epidemiologists who work out of the University of Calgary. Um, they've been very, very clear that while children are not largely negatively affected with uh, mortality, uh, they're very, very clear that, that kids can spread uh, COVID. So I just wanted to make that, that clear for our audience, um, but please go on.
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you raised it. This, this discussion that we're having, we've had too little of it in the last 11 months. I think there's been, uh, the government's been T, t, from what I've seen, anyway, they're they're not producing the science and the evidence on which they rely. They make a lot of assertions about you know this is evidence-based policy. Uh, we have to follow the science. But I, I've tried repeatedly to um, to ask you know what is the government's uh, base scientific basis for believing that asymptomatic people are uh, dangerous spreaders of the virus, and you know I get no answer. Uh, when the uh, Jason Kenney and Dina Hinshaw came out uh, April the 8th with their modeling. And they said that as many as 32,000 people in Alberta could die of COVID, even with lockdown measures in place, we could see 32,000 deaths. And so I asked the simple question, where do you get that number from? How did you calculate it? Where did you arrive at it? What is it based on? And it, complete stonewalling. And so this is really unfortunate, and I, I, think, I, I think there should be more discussion, you know, say this, this issue, well, to what extent do children really uh, spread the virus or not? And there's different medical experts will have different opinions. This is one of the issues in the court action, by the way. So what, what you and I are now discussing, uh, a judge is going to be making a ruling as to whether uh, children are, you know, dangerous spreaders, you know, to a large degree or a small degree or no degree at all. Uh, we're going to be getting court rulings on all of these, uh, these medical and scientific issues.
0: Okay. Um, I, I, I definitely won't disagree with you that we have had some problems with the opaque nature of communications from the, the provincial government. Uh, on, on that fact, we can certainly agree on. I could go on for hours. But I still want to, to, to hear more from you about what your concerns are leaving the, the, the children spreading COVID behind.
1: Sure. No, I mean, it's a, it's a sub-issue. So where I was going with this is that the, um, initially in March, there is so much we did not know. And there were people saying, you know, this was, uh, this was an unusually deadly killer. It was, you know, far, far, far outside of the range of an annual flu. We should all be afraid. We didn't know about the age ranges. Um, There was so much we didn't know. So I think it was reasonable in, in March and April for the government to uh, take uh, strong measures, you know, shutting down schools and businesses and and so on. Uh, that was reasonable back then. Today we're 11 and a half months into lockdowns or, you know, variations thereof. Some people, uh, I was talking to one person said, oh no, these are uh, social restrictions. Don't call them lockdowns. Okay. That's fine. We can, you know, different terms, but we've, we've had restrictions now for um, 11 uh, where are we at now? 11, about 11 months now. And, and there's no sign of them going away anytime soon because there's talk of second, you know, first there was a talk of the second wave. And now there's talk about new strains of COVID. Um, These restrictions could be here uh, forever. They could be here for years. And I think public policy should be based on facts and evidence and looking at what we know now about COVID and about who it impacts primarily knowing the, the death stats um, it's time that we brought the public policies back in line with reality and with the facts. And unfortunately there's still a lot of fear out there. Uh, Fear is exacerbated by media who, in my view, most media are, uh, very pro-lockdown biased. I think they're they're almost serving like the government's uh, paid propaganda machine. Um, and, and they frighten people with scary numbers of cases. And so the, the headline will say, you know, we had another 5,000 cases in Quebec or 1,000 cases in Alberta in the past week or the past month. Cases, cases, cases. It's a word that 11 months ago referred to sick people. You know, we had cases of breast cancer, cases of the flu, cases of whatever referred to sick people. But these cases that the media are talking about, these are positive tests on the PCR uh, test. And if you've got a thousand positive cases, in fact, you've got 20 or 30 or 40 people who are sick and you've got another uh, 960, 970 uh, that, are, that don't have any symptoms or, or that have minor symptoms that do not need to be hospitalized. So the media talking about these scary case numbers is keeping a lot of people uh, in a state of fear. And then you do get a lot of support for the lockdowns uh, because people are still afraid. Okay. I, w-
0: I wanna ask, what's your definition of a lockdown versus a restriction? Um, because you kinda, at the beginning of, of what you said there, you kind of recognize that there there is a little bit of a delineation between the two. Um, uh, I'd like to know what your definition of a lockdown is. Okay. I
1: don't object. Uh, I guess I guess you say, you know, you've got a full lockdown. You've got a partial lockdown. You've got severe restrictions. You've got minor restrictions. I'm not adverse to to you or to anybody else or the, the politicians, the media, the public. We can talk about restrictions uh, as well as lockdowns. I, I don't have a specific definition of lockdown insofar as I think you can have a severe lockdown where – uh, you know, I think Quebec is providing a good example of that with the eight p.m. curfew, uh, curfew. and uh, you know, and they're talking about setting up barricades between different parts of the provinces or police check stops in in the middle of Montreal. Uh, you've got more severe forms. You've got uh, minor forms. Um, but I don't think anybody denies that, that these are restrictions, whether severe restriction or minor restriction. These are clearly restrictions on our charter freedoms to move, to travel, to associate, to assemble. Uh, these are uh, to, to worship. Um, these are definitely restrictions of Charter Section 2 freedoms of conscience and religion, expression, peaceful assembly, association. Charter Section 6 right to uh, enter and leave Canada freely charter section seven, right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And then all the, uh, with the detentions and confinements now of, of people locked up in hotels in, I mean, yes, they are hotels, but it's also kind of like a prison when somebody grabs you and says, we're taking you somewhere, we're locking you up and you can't leave. It's a prison of sorts, but again, I, you know, we can call them hotels, call them federal facilities. Um, there's violations there of your uh, charter freedom to not be arbitrarily arrested and detained and confined and denied the right to, uh, to legal counsel and your habeas corpus right, which is that when you're captured, when you're forcibly confined or imprisoned, uh, you have a right to have your case appear before a judge for confirmation either that they can continue to lock you up until trial or they have to let you go free. And none of these uh, procedural rights that you are entitled to when you're accused of murder or shoplifting or whatever else, all of these procedural protections for the citizen are out the window with these new federal uh, quarantine policies.
0: Okay. I think if I can jump in just because I don't want to, you're, you're Covered a lot very of quickly there. and uh, I want to make sure that we, we don't leave anything behind. So I think it's important to point out that when we're talking about the differentiation between a lockdown and a restriction, uh, when you talk to public health experts, when you talk to public policy experts, when you talk to epidemiologists, the universal consensus is that Alberta has never experienced a lockdown. Um, We have had restrictions of varying degrees. I don't think that's up for debate, but in the the sense of how a lockdown is defined as a measure that's used to deal with a pandemic, looking at countries like uh, Australia or like New Zealand, uh, those are countries that that implemented much more uh, severe measures, I would say, uh, in order to get the disease under control. And to their credit, um, I, was, I, I was on the Twitter machine yesterday and I saw a picture of the, the Prime Minister from New Zealand uh, and she was at an outdoor music festival surrounded by thousands of people and she's only able to do that because their, their case numbers because of those measures um, are gone. Uh, and so that's, I just, I, I just want to make sure that we're, we're being very clear on the terminology that we're using because I would be happy to argue myself, that part of the reason why we've had the sustained measures in place is because the Alberta government has not at any point initiated the, the type, I mean, we've, we've half-assed our restrictions is what we've done. And because we're half-assing them, pardon my language, um, we're, we're, we're dragging the whole process out much longer than I think anybody really wants it. Um, so I want to just jump into the you you listed off the Can I, the... can I
1: respond to one of your points there? Yeah, for sure. I've I've heard politicians assert and and lots of other people not just politicians and they say, well, if it wasn't for lockdowns, we would have had way more deaths. The lockdowns have saved lots of lives. And my question is, where is the evidence for that? And I think it's it's easy to make an assertion, but one of the things coming up in the court action is that you know, I'm I'm I would predict Obviously, I don't speak for the government, but I think in court, the government's going to say, oh, if we hadn't had these restrictions, and I'm not I'm not hell-bent on the word lockdown, right? Like, I, I don't know how to define lockdown, but I would say you can have uh, extreme, moderate, and minor variations of it. So I think lockdown and restriction are, uh, I think they're interchangeable words, right? The question is, do we have mild restrictions, moderate stri- restrictions, severe restrictions? Same goes for lockdown. So I don't really have a definition, but I'll freely acknowledge that there, there is a difference, uh, yes, between uh, let's say Australia on one extreme and uh, uh, Sweden on the other extreme and uh, Alberta somewhere, you know, part way between Australia and Sweden. So I'm not fixated on the word lockdown and I'm, I'm happy to use the term restrictions, okay. but in court- I think,
0: uh, I think just, for, just for clarity.
1: Sorry,
0: I was just going to say. I think if we, I think if we, if we use the term restrictions um, no, no. to describe certainly what's been going on in Alberta and I would argue Canada, uh, I think that it would be a little bit more uh, accurate in comparison to what has been called a lockdown and the measures that have been used for lockdowns in areas that have pursued that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, there
1: absolutely there are restrictions on our on our charter freedoms, and and in court the government. I predict is going to say look uh, these lockdowns have saved lives but uh, they're going to have to come up with some evidence to to prove that and i'll be interested to see what the government has to say in court uh, because one of the benefits of the court action i've I've said in in different interviews you know even if we lose these court actions which obviously we're hoping to win uh, even if we lose the court actions it's going to force the government for the first time to Show the world the science that it is relying on and it's going to force the government for the first time to answer some tough questions which right now in my opinion is not happening at all. Uh, There are not that many people um, you know other than uh, I guess you know independent news outlets or whatever other adjective you know you you might have say the rebel media uh, or maybe some independent journalists that are asking some tough questions but, but by and large, the mainstream media is not asking Dina Hinshaw in Alberta uh, or the other chief medical officers in other provinces really hard-hitting questions. And in court, the government's going to have to answer a lot of questions that it has not answered yet.
0: Okay. Uh, with the charter piece, uh, you listed off a bunch of areas of the, the charter that you you believe and your organization believe uh, are, are vi- being violated. Um I want to just sort of frame my understanding a little bit better, just so that I can better understand what you're trying to say. Um, Are charter rights absolute?
1: No, Section 1 of the Charter allows the government to violate charter rights and freedoms um, if the government can demonstrably justify that the violation of charter freedoms is uh, reasonable and rational and necessary in a free and democratic society. So none of these none of these rights and freedoms are uh, are, are absolute. Uh, however, the onus is not on Canadian citizens to explain why the Charter violation is wrong. It, the onus is on the government to explain why the Charter violation is justified.
0: Okay. Historically speaking, when Charter viol- when Charter vi- or Charter rights have been set aside, I I, I don't know what the, the correct word to use would be. I'm not a lawyer. Um, has the government demonstrated that need before or after they've implemented whatever changes they've needed to implement
1: it's usually after I mean technically if if governments were doing their job they would be you know already right now uh, they would be taking a hard and serious look at all the different kinds of lockdown harms and how serious or not these various harms are and I know I'm jumping ahead because we might get into that Uh, yeah we will (laughs) Yeah, the the way it's supposed to be is that apart from any court action, the government, what federal, provincial, municipal, the government's supposed to be taking a very hard, serious look at both the harms and the benefits of its policies. But in practice, what ordinarily happens is governments don't get serious about justifying their charter-violating measures until after a court action has been filed, and uh, and now that's happening. Okay.
0: Um, You talked a little bit about the the COVID hotels uh, or or prisons, as you like to call them. Um, I just want to clarify there, the people who are being taken to those facilities, whether we want to call them prisons or hotels, doesn't really matter to me. Doesn't really matter. Um, Yeah. um, Are these people who are being taken arbitrarily or are these people who have failed to comply with travel uh, restrictions and guidelines?
1: That's an excellent question. They are not being taken arbitrarily in the sense that uh, government's not saying, you know, well, you, you've got black hair, we're taking you, but you know, and you, you're wearing a blue suit. We're not taking you. It's not arbitrary in that sense, but the policy itself is arbitrary because the government has not put forward evidence to show that um, the home quarantine is not working. You know, ordinarily, uh, this would be analogous to, okay, we have a law against speeding. If you speed and you get caught, you can get the thousand dollar or sorry, not the thousand dollar ticket, hopefully, <laughs> but you know, you can get a fast. <laughs> You have to, <laughs> if you're going that fast, they just pull your license. They, they wouldn't give you a thousand dollar fine, but ordinarily you've got laws and they are enforced by way of, if you break the law, you get uh, you, you get a, a penalty or a punishment of, of, of some kind. And uh what what we've got here? Well, we, we had a policy of home quarantine. The the fines and penalties were already very severe. I seem to recall, don't quote me on this, but uh, it's, you know, seven, up to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, six months in jail. You already have this quarantine policy law, if you wish, and you already have severe consequences. And the government in court, and we're filing a court action next week, the week of uh, February the 15th, the government's going to have to explain in court why we need to kind of you know, lock people up who haven't even broken the law, and this would be analogous to the, the policeman saying, well, I think you might speed, I think there's a, a chance of it, so I'm, I'm going to stop you from getting into your car and driving. It's like this preemptive strike, and that's, that's contrary to uh, our, our constitution to have that kind of preemptive, we're going to lock you up even though you haven't uh, committed a crime and we have no evidence that the home quarantine system was not working.
0: In fairness, though, to be clear, the people, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, to my understanding, the people that are being taken to these facilities are people who have failed to get the required testing to return back to, to Canada. So it's, it's, it's a little inaccurate, I'll say, to, to say, say that no, they have not done anything because they've failed to meet the standard that's been set for international travel. And to my knowledge as well, international travel is not a charter right. Uh, so there's, there's some, some clarification that I'd like to get from you there, because if my understanding is correct, these people have been provided, these are what the instruct. these are the criteria that you need to meet in order to be able to travel during this pandemic. And the people who are going to these, being, being taken to these hotels are people who have failed to meet those, uh, requirements. Am I wrong in that?
1: Okay. Let me do the short... The short ones first, we do have a, we do have a charter freedom to enter and leave the country freely. Uh, so you said we don't have a charter freedom to international travel. I mean, I don't know where, maybe there's a distinction between international travel versus the, the right, the charter freedom to enter Canada and leave Canada. Uh, but that's definitely a charter freedom. And it's one of the hallmarks of a democracy is that uh, you can freely, leave and re-enter your own country uh this is one of the dichotomies when the cold war was still on uh you know the soviet bloc you could not leave those countries it was it was illegal or you needed special permission whereas the democracies you can leave your country and you can come back into it so it is a chart of freedom um Another troubling thing the, about the quarantines is that we started to hear reports. One of our clients, uh, Nikki Mathis of, of Edmonton, was uh, detained without, without any policy having yet come into law. It was kind of a new announcement, so that's not a good procedurally. But the last point, maybe these, uh, I, think, I think you have a good argument that, that the problem is not arbitrariness. I think you have a valid argument that, yes, there are uh, policies in place. But the, the problem is that the PCR tests are notoriously unreliable and uh, the government will have to show in court, because I mean, you and I could debate this, you know, back and forth and that would be fine as well. But in court, the, gar- the government's going to have to show that the PCR test is uh, reliable and that it, it is much more reliable than the antigen test. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, science that's going to get debated in the, in the courtrooms there on, on that point. So you know, can is it legitimate on the part of the government to insist on a PCR test? Okay.
0: My my point, though, I mean, I am not a an epidemiologist by any stretch, of and an I mean, neither am I. Um, but uh, the only point that I'm making is is that, uh, for example, if I if I want to leave Canada, there are certain requirements that I have to be able to meet before I leave the country. I need a passport, is an easy example, um, even just to go to the states. Uh, so there are steps that anyone who wants to exercise that charter right need to follow in order to be able to exercise that charter right. And the only point that I'm trying to make, and I don't know about this, this Nikki Mathis situation, so that sounds like that might have been a screw-up. Um, but it's not that the charter right is causing, or the revocation of the charter right is causing people to end up in these facilities. It's their uh for whatever reason, the inability or the unwillingness to follow the steps that have been put into place to allow them to exercise the charter right. Uh, so I that's that's sort of how I, I approach it. Do you think that that's unfair or inaccurate?
1: No, I I, I think, I think on the whole, I think your point is, is reasonable. And indeed, you know, you talk about passports. We sued the federal government uh, about six months ago. I think it was around May of 2020 uh, could have been April or June uh, the federal government uh, once lockdowns or restrictions came into force the federal government stopped issuing passports except for you know a tiny number of of people that the government you know if they felt that it was truly an emergency but a broad-based issuance of passports stopped and effectively that had the effect of denying people the right to to enter and leave canada because you can't do it without a passport right you even a plane leaving canada they won't let you get on the plane without your canadian passport So we sued the federal government and uh, two or three weeks later, the federal government reversed course and said, oh, we are going to issue passports again. So um, the big question is, uh, is it a reasonable, because rights are not absolute. So your right to enter and leave Canada is not absolute. Uh, You know, if you were some, uh, you know, violent terrorist plotting to commit, you know, violent acts against people. Uh, you know, you're probably going to lose some of your freedom to cross borders at will, you know, you might. um, But are these are these uh, restrictions reasonable and justifiable is the question before the court. So our perspective is that to not allow people to quarantine at home, whether they've got a PCR test or not, or an antigen test or not, is um, is an unreasonable violation of the citizen's freedom that the government can adequately enforce that law uh, simply by saying, "Look, you know, here's the policy, and and if we catch you uh, leaving house, then you could go to jail for up to six months, or you could, uh, you know, be subjected to some whatever quarter million, three quarter of a million dollar fine. That's adequate to go this extra step of uh, locking people up uh, in, in a hotel for three days." Um, And then, of course, the broader question is, does this virus warrant any of these measures when you look at the government's data and statistics on the numbers of people dying versus, uh, you know, number of people dying because of lockdowns? Uh, So, I mean, I would go further and say that that none of these restrictions are warranted uh, in light of the facts that we
0: know about, about COVID. Okay, so before we leave the 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 COVID hotel bit alone, there's just one other point that I'd I'd like to quickly make. Um, I I totally appreciate your concerns that the putting people in these hotels for three days while awaiting test results is is a an escalation of of measures. I would be willing to argue though that given that these people have already demonstrated an inability to follow the instructions for international travel there's a conversation to be had around well if if you can't follow the rules then you've shown us that you can't follow the rules so if you can't follow the rules for international travel we're just going to let you go home and trust that you won't screw those rules up uh, there's, there's, I think a conversation to be had around that, but moving on to the, the conversation. I think, around this. I think the government will
1: raise, it's a valid point, And I, am sure the government will raise it in court. Uh, what, what you've just said and, uh, you know, some of the, some of our responses to that we've, we've already covered, but yeah, I'm sure the government will raise that in court as an argument.
0: Okay. Um, When you're talking about the impact of restrictions versus uh, the impact of of COVID-19, I want to preface this by saying uh, it's very important, to me at least, that when we're talking about those things that we're basing it on accurate data, not speculation, not supposition, uh, or assumptions. So when we're talking about the impact of this virus on a, a global scale, uh, I've heard some people make comparisons and say, well, it's not the, the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu killed like 20 million people or whatever. It was a lot. Um, when I looked at the data yesterday from Johns Hopkins, uh, there are 2.36 million people who have died worldwide from COVID so we're we're we we are talking about millions of of lives lost because of this disease now granted we haven't seen those numbers necessarily in alberta and i think that there's a lot of different reasons for that uh and i'm hoping that we can get into that um but I, first i'd like to hear why why do you believe that the restrictions carry a greater loss of life than the disease
1: okay you've raised a lot of points there Let me start by saying that I agree that public policy should not be based on speculation and surmising and conjecture. And on that point, uh, there is no country or society or civilization in the history of humankind uh, that has succeeded in vanquishing a virus by locking down the entire healthy population. We We have a quarantine, which is the isolation of the sick that was discovered thousands of years ago uh, in, and actually interestingly enough in, in different cultures, the ancient Greeks, the Jews, of course, uh, the Chinese, different civilizations discovered, you know, this idea of quarantine. So you lock, lock away the sick people, you isolate them, but to lock down an entire population or, or to place restrictions on, you know, again, I'm not fixated on the word lockdown, but, but to place restrictions on an entire population for 11 months, this is an experiment that has never been tried before. And it is based and premised on speculation that, well, maybe if we lock down everybody, it's gonna be a good thing and it's going to work. And it's very much an experiment.
0: Wouldn't Australia and New Zealand defy that premise though? I mean, you you just said, there's been no countries in the history of the world that have been able to eradicate a virus based on uh, implementing restrictions of, of, of severe degrees. Australia and New Zealand have.
1: Well, we're only eleven months into this, and eleven months is a long time when it's uh, violations of, of your your human rights and, and your charter freedoms. Uh, but uh, you're more familiar, obviously, with the uh, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, New Zealand uh, situations. So I'm I'm not not in a position to uh, to, to respond to that. Um, but if if you're okay with it, I'll, I'll move into the lockdown yeah, har- harms harms thing. So my main point is simply this: this is a big experiment, and even Australia and New Zealand were eleven months into the uh, experiment. Uh, so the the data has to be put in context. Okay, so you've got roughly you've got seven point eight billion people in the world. You've got about fifty five million people that die every year, which is a huge number, but it's also kind of what you would expect when your world population is seven seven point eight billion. We all die, uh, typically. Uh, the older you are, the closer you are to death, and you know lots of exceptions, of course. Young people die as well, but typically older people die. So you've got 55 million deaths worldwide, and then you've you mentioned, uh, I believe you said 2.63 million COVID deaths. 2.36. Okay. Let's take the numbers at at face value because there's a whole other tangent there where public health officials have said publicly in Italy and in the United States that anybody who dies with COVID in their body is deemed to have died of COVID, but that's a whole separate topic. But even taking the numbers at face value, so you got 2.36 million. When you look at the demographics, these are people in their 90s, their 80s, their 70s, are you know ninety percent of the deaths are people who are already dying of uh, cancer, emphysema, uh, lung disease, heart disease, so on and so forth. And the best way and the most honest way to evaluate an illness or, or a virus or a disease is you have to look at the impact on life expectancy. And if there if there's an illness that is killing children. Uh, you're there, there's a concept in medical science, years of life lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're, we're working on, we haven't completed the study yet, but we're looking at a comparison. The annual flu uh, always every year would kill children. uh, Ages zero to five were at risk as well as a lot of older people. And then if you're between the ages of five and 65, you know, then uh, yes, there'd also be some deaths, but it would be a pretty small number. Um, with COVID, the number of deaths among children is—it it makes it makes a headline when it happens. It is it is that rare, and then usually it's a child who is immune compromised who would be at risk of all kinds of diseases, not just COVID. So by and large, we're not seeing children. There there are many many jurisdictions in the world where the number of people under twenty dying of COVID is zero. So the sure. impact of COVID, the impact of COVID on population life expectancy is minimal. Prior to COVID, you know, you had, um, you would have 55 million people dying and and a large chunk of those people would be in their nineties, eighties, and seventies. And a large chunk of those people would have multiple causes of death. Uh, That's another factor that's important, right? If you're, you're in, let's say you're in a nursing home, you're 85 years old and you've got cancer and maybe it's in remission, but you know they've said it's going to come back, and you've got heart disease, and you've got diabetes. Well, then a virus comes along. In uh, 2019, it would have been the annual flu. In 2020, it would have been COVID. Yes, it does hasten your death, uh, absolutely. Uh, but to really say you know these 2.3 million people died because of covid i think is uh you know it's true on one level but it's it's the truth is more complicated and nuanced
0: i have to challenge you a little bit on there uh, in two places so first of all i don't think that it's accurate especially with this virus and and its presentation to measure only deaths uh the impact of long haulers uh and the long-term economic impact of long haulers as well as quality of life for those who are affected as long haulers which crosses all ages uh so we have long haulers who are our children who are experiencing inflammatory symptoms that are causing cardiac cardiac effects uh we have long haulers in the 20s and 30s and we don't know why it happens and that's 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 a scary thing to me uh personally but it, it speaks to the fact that because we're dealing with a, a disease that's behaving in a way that we cannot pretend to understand yet, to use any single metric to determine what its long-term impact is, like mortality, is uh, perhaps a, a misleading road to, to go down. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to hit on that. But I also wanted to challenge you a bit on the, the well, if they had cancer, they were going to die anyways, or or whatever uh, underlying conditions. Alberta is the only province that reports on comorbidities. Um, And I would bet you dollars to donuts if somebody who had emphysema, or COPD, or CHF, or pick a thing, was to walk out into the middle of the street and get hit by a bus, the story would not be, ah, I had cancer anyways. Uh, They got killed because they were hit by a bus. And yes, I mean, every, as you've pointed out yourself, everybody dies. Uh, you know, the the survival rate of any individual on a long enough timeline is zero. Um, but there are preventable things uh, that that I think can mitigate. The, not only the impact of, of the, the death, but the long-term quality of life, because those do not just in regards to, to when we're talking about long haulers. There's plenty of examples of people who haven't been able to go into work for six months, eight months, um, but they also require care, and that doesn't come for free. I mean, in Canada, we have universal health care, so you don't have to pay for your health care, but that doesn't mean it's free. Somebody's still paying for it, and it's generally the taxpayer. So it's it's. I struggle with the notion that you can just measure COVID and the impact of COVID by the the straight mortality rate, because I don't think that paints a complete picture.
1: No. And that, you know, you started out talking about the, you know, this, this virus uh, we've got, you know, 2.36 million people have died because of COVID. Um, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that uh, non-lethal harm is irrelevant. I mean, in, in fact, it's the same thing with canceled surgeries, right? In Alberta, uh, alone, over uh, over 20,000 surgeries were cancelled. Over 200,000 surgeries cancelled across Canada, and people have died because their surgery was cancelled. But in addition to that, you've got long-term harm. If you need orthopedic surgery on your, you know, your lower back, your knee, your hip, and we're we've we've already got a disaster uh, with waiting lists. Huge problem um, before the restrictions or lockdowns came into place but you know if if you get if you've already been on a waiting list for six months for um for orthopedic surgery and now you wait for another six months there are patients that get to a point it's like well your your window of opportunity when surgery might have helped has now closed and you have permanent health damage inflicted on people because their surgeries were cancelled because the hospitals were emptied, because we were going to have a wave of of COVID patients who never came, so that would be into the territory of lockdown harms. But okay. I agree, with, I agree with you that this is not morbidity is not is not the only issue. And to whatever extent that COVID is inflicting uh, either long-term or permanent health damage on on people, uh, that's absolutely
0: relevant. Okay, I'm curious what you make of the. I've I've heard a lot of people, and I alluded to this earlier. I've heard a lot of people cite uh the the spanish flu not a big fan Jason of
1: his Jason Kenny has publicly on several occasions he has compared covid to the spanish flu and this is an example of politicians that are fearmongering and making everybody unnecessarily afraid because covid and spanish covid and the spanish flu are not in the same league at all. It's like comparing the moon to the sun. I mean, they, they both shine out some light, <laughs> but, you know, that, that's about their only similarity.
0: Tec- technically, the moon reflects light, but... Yes, no, I, uh, I
1: agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah.
0: the With with that Spanish flu comparison, one of the things that I've struggled with is when people use the Spanish flu to try to minimize the effect of COVID. Because as much as, as, as Kenny and others have certainly said, this could be that bad the the reality is when we're talking about the spanish flu we're talking about something that uh, and i'm working from memory here ended roughly in 1920. Um, to, to list a few of the medical advances that we've seen since 1920 we're talking about the discovery of insulin we're talking about vaccines for diphtheria pertussis tuberculosis tetanus importantly influenza polio the pacemaker was discovered after 1920 and perhaps most importantly when we're talking about a respiratory illness that carries a high mortality rate, ICU-style uh, ventilators weren't even developed until the 1940s. So if we were to take away all of these tools, uh, I, think, I think it would be safe to say that we might not hit the, the same numbers that the Spanish flu hit. But if we're going to if we're going to try to compare a little bit of apples to apples, we have to take away all of the medical resources that we've developed since then and ask ourselves if we didn't have any of these interventions, what would we be seeing happen with COVID? And certainly uh, in the United States, and places like Italy, we've seen that one of the definitive uh, interventions is the uh, ventilators. And so if we didn't have those, I bet our numbers would probably be quite a bit higher.
1: Okay. I'm sure you know more about ventilators than I do. Um, my understanding and it's anecdotal and just off of uh, reading media reports was that the uh, ventilators in many cases were not helpful. And so the, I remember back in March and April, it's like, well, we, we don't have enough ventilators. So we have to lock down or restrict the whole population, not to eradicate the virus, but just to control the the spread, uh, flatten the curve. Um, but then when more COVID patients did go into hospital and were, were treated. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, the people were saying that the ventilators were very unhelpful. Anyway, it's a side tangent. I stand to be corrected, but uh, that's just... Yeah.
0: I, would, I would argue as, as, as somebody who has treated COVID patients myself and seen their progression, certainly in the emergency room and to some degree the ICU, uh, my understanding of the current medicine for the, the ventilators is one of the biggest things that causes damage to somebody who's in extreme respiratory distress is that, I'm oversimplifying a fair amount here, but their lungs basically get shredded because they're working so hard to breathe. And the ventilator, as an early intervention, prevents that from happening. So um there's there's certainly people who are so heavily hit by COVID that they're not able to recover, um even with the intervention of a ventilator. But I think that it's it's important to to have if we're gonna have the Spanish flu conversation by anyone, whether we're using it to over inflate COVID or under inflate COVID, I think we have to do that within the context of where how far medical science has come since then.
1: Um, you referred earlier to, you know, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, but it, it's it's about you know helping and protecting people. And I think a big problem in the last eleven months is that that there has been inadequate protection of the the most vulnerable group. This is the, COVID is a virus where uh, again it, there's a huge distinction that if you are over seventy and you have uh, one or two or three or more serious health conditions, you're in a very vulnerable group. Uh, however. Outside of that group, yes, there are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s uh, as well. But in terms of, you know, who should be afraid of COVID, it should be the people in the nursing homes. Because typically, in the you, you don't go into a nursing home unless you're already quite ill. I mean, the average life expectancy for somebody moving into a nursing home is 12 months. If you're a healthy senior and you don't have, you know, one or two or three serious illnesses, you're probably living at home uh, and you're not in a nursing home. But I think for a fraction of the amount of money that has been uh, that has been lost either by way of federal debt, we've got federal and provincial debt combined. I don't even know what the number is. It's skyrocketing every day, but we've got hundreds of billions of dollars of new debt combined with separate loss of probably hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars taken out of the economy by forcing people into unemployment. If you take that, it, it, let's say we came up with a number of of uh, $1 trillion for Canada combined, sure. uh, just, just inventing that, right? So you have new federal provincial debt and losses to the economy. COVID's costing us a trillion. For a small fraction of that, we could have had life go on as normal and could have put a fraction of that money into a very, very effective protection of the Nursing homes and not have you know four people to a room, not torture these poor people by cutting them off from from friends and family for months on end. Uh, I think what we've done to the seniors in nursing homes is is cruel. I mean it's it's torture to be locked up for months on end. When and I'm not denigrating the staff there. I know they're working hard and they're good people. But what my information is is that typically in a nursing home sure, the staff are looking after you, but really what makes the difference for your life is you get the visit from your, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew. And not only do they bring that, what we all need, uh, love and attention and affection, and, and, uh, but they also help with feeding. And, and there's also an accountability factor in place as well. If you've got regular family visits coming in, uh, the family member is going to notice, hey, your, your skin's a little bit different color from yesterday, what's going on, right? Whereas a, a busy staff person might not notice unless there is a, a more severe change. So um, long story short, to say it in one sentence, I think we should have been, and going forward should be, protecting the vulnerable group, which is seniors in nursing homes or 80% of, of deaths, uh, without restricting and inflicting a lot of harm on the entire population through things like unemployment, loneliness, uh, depression, anxiety, isolation, uh, drug overdoses, canceled surgeries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a better way to do it. And it would cost a, cost a lot less than the, the $1 trillion number that I've come up,
0: come up with. Yeah, I, I, I would comfortably agree with you that I think that the, the measures that certainly the Alberta government has continued to use, uh, are, as I said at the beginning, uh, half-assed and they're dragging the situation on much longer than they, they need to be. Um, I've, I've certainly seen no shortage of epidemiologists uh, and specialists saying, can we please just do two weeks and get it done? Um, but the the fear seems to be that if you, you go down that two weeks and just get it done... Um, then what you're looking at is a significant public outcry. Um, I only have a couple more questions for you because I know that you're, you're running on a limited timeline and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that you've been willing to spend the time with us today. Um, the, the two other big pieces that I just wanted to sort of get your take on uh, real quick um, is the conversation around, uh, it seems like, I'll say that carefully, that uh, there's a lot of people who are saying that their lives shouldn't be impacted because of other people's hardship. Uh, We've certainly seen no shortage of of anti-mask demonstrations and and freedom walk demonstrations where where people are openly flouting the the restrictions. And the the one thing in particular that I'd like to get your take on, because we we have had a lot of this conversation around people being responsible uh, and following the guidelines as to prevent the situation from getting worse. How do you respond when you see people who are exploiting loopholes in the situation? Um, to try to prove that they're fighting back in some way. So the, the easy example that I'll use is the, the exemption cards that, that people are printing off at home and then leaving on people's windshields and saying, you know, if you just, I mean, it's not true, but if you just show this card, then you'll be okay. To me, I look at at people who are doing things like that, and i go i don 't know what you 're trying to accomplish here because inevitably you 're just going to make things worse because you're encouraging people to find ways to subvert uh, the the rule of law how how do you How do you respond when you see people doing things like that well
1: it 's difficult to know uh, in fact impossible to or it's difficult to know broadly you know what are people's motives and intentions when, when they do things, sometimes you, you can know because they tell you, uh, although then, you know, begs the other question, are are they telling you the truth when they say that? I think a lot of the non-compliance is, uh, and there's definitely a lot of, lot of non-compliance with, with all kinds of, of measures. Um, I think the, uh, and admittedly this is speculation that there's a large number of people who are not convinced that this is a virus that warrants, restrictions on our freedom in the first place, because the virus is not as lethal as what it was made out to be 11 months ago. So for any number of reasons that I've, I i do not want to repeat the whole, all the arguments, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. but I'm saying if people, people who are not complying, my guess is that in a lot of cases, they, they don't believe that the virus is worth uh, the loss of, of freedom and, and the economic harms and psychological blah blah blah—all these different harms—is not worth it. That the measures are not effective. Uh, so that—and that's a different argument. That's to say, okay, even if even if the uh, COVID was as lethal as what uh, our politicians say it is, that these measures are not effective. Uh, that mask wearing is not effective. Uh, that social distancing is not effective. Um, so people don't—they don't buy into it in the first place. And uh, my guess is that's the biggest reason for non-compliance. If somebody: as,
0: as someone who's spent the last 10 years defending the rule of law in Canada with your organization, uh, to me, it, it should be a no-brainer that, that following the law is not an option. We have, and, and to the, the credit of your organization, you guys go through legal pathways to, to create legal challenges. Uh, and those are the mechanisms, those are the levers by which challenges to laws are supposed to be followed. Um, it, it seems to me that if, if we start to have conversations around, well, if you don't believe that you can die in a car crash going 120, just do it and see what happens. We're, we're, we're setting up a very dangerous precedent.
1: I disagree because the charter is the supreme law of the land. And uh, in, in in my view and the view of the Justice Center, these restrictions are not uh, justifiable. They're not justified violations of our freedom to move and travel and assemble and worship and associate, uh, so on and so forth. Speaking of the rule of law, you know, the rule of law is undermined when uh, you have thousands of people flouting Publicly, openly, deliberately, blatantly flouting public health orders by marching against racism. And you get, you know, no adverse reaction. You know, Doug Ford in Ontario says, oh, that's fine. You know, Mary in Calgary says, oh, that's fine. Dina Hinshaw, Jason Kenney, uh, you know, they murmur some, you know, minor disapproval. Uh, but then you have people who are protesting against lockdowns and then it's oh you know shame on them they're lawbreakers there's a very definite double standard that if you're protesting against racism that's okay because that's you know more important than fighting covid but if you're protesting against lockdowns well shame on you because you're 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 uh, flaunting uh, the rule of law i mean anyway, that's a bit of a side tangent that there's a double standard there but the charter i, I believe in the rule of law and i, uh, I also believe as the Charter says, it is the supreme law of the land. So to the extent that these health orders are violating our Charter rights and freedoms unjustifiably, uh, it's perfectly legitimate, perfectly appropriate for citizens to exercise their Charter freedoms. And I know people could say, wait, wait for a court ruling. We're not going to have a court ruling for four years. That's a very long time to not exercise your Charter rights and freedoms and, and wait for two, three, four years for a court ruling to finally vindicate them.
0: So to be clear, though, what it, it, it seems to me what you just argued was if somebody believes, regardless of what the evidence is, if somebody believes that their charter rights are being violated, they should still be able to behave in whatever way they choose.
1: I'm not saying whatever way they choose, but I'm saying the charter gives us, uh, for, for example, charter gives us, the uh, charter section 2C is uh, freedom of peaceful assembly. We can assemble uh, peacefully. So as long as you're not... Uh, you know, rioting and burning down buildings and smashing store windows, right? There's there's appropriate boundaries there. We have a charter freedom to assemble peacefully. If the health order uh, says you cannot assemble peacefully, it's the charter is above the health order. So when people assemble peacefully, they're exercising their charter freedom. Now, with that comes a responsibility that if, if you get ticketed, that you accept the ticket and you take it to court to fight it out. But the only way to sort this out is for people to get the tickets and then we can take it before a judge because unless and until it goes to court and unless until we get a ruling you kind of have this abstract uh, conflict between you know exercising your charter freedom of peaceful assembly or obeying the the health order right they're they're kind of in conflict in abstract so they have to go to court and we need court rulings on these things
0: okay okay Last question that I want to ask you, uh, and it's a bit of a departure from the topic that we've had so far. Um, I've heard uh, you express in, in other places that you have concerns about things being taken out of context. No. Um, so I want to, A, get your perception of context. I think judging from your smile, you can probably already tell where I'm going with this. Um, but I'd like to get your explanation of the context in regards to the rainbow flag comments.
1: Sure. You know, I, one of the reasons why I agreed to be interviewed by you is we had an email exchange and you said, you're going to put the whole thing on, uh, on the air. Right. And so Absolutely. it's like, you know, great. Then I'm fine with that. You know, what, what happened in November, 2018, I was giving a speech at a, at a conference and I made the point that our rights and freedoms can be undermined, um, can be violated under the banner of any, flag any symbol. And I made the point that when repressive regimes take away our rights and freedoms, they always put forward a pretext, right? So, and that could be, you know, anything from, we got to fight terrorism, it's national security, it's the dangerous, scary neighbor next door that's going to invade us. It's communism, it's uh, anti-communism, right? Like, so when when regimes violate your rights and free, and now it's COVID, there's always a good reason or a reason that sounds good to a lot of people that is put forward. So we have to be, uh, we have to, my, my point in the speech was we have to be vigilant that when rights and freedoms come under attack, um, we have to look at our rights and freedoms and, and not be mesmerized by the political symbol under which, uh, or, you know, or the, the slogan under which the violations are taking place. Which is okay. kind of a it 's kind of a nuanced point, and i 've yet to meet somebody that seriously disagrees with i 'm not saying that there can 't be a good rebuttal to that, but I have yet to hear anybody disagree with me when I say that you know, our rights and freedoms can be violated under any banner. Then I made the mistake, which I regret, and I referred to uh, you know, three different political symbols in the same sentence, and I said it doesn 't matter whether it 's a, b or c. the important thing is we have to fight against totalitarianism totalitarianism being the removal of our rights and freedoms. Now, when you look at that, if you look only at that sentence and you say, uh, uh, look, whether it's A, B, or C, uh, it doesn't matter if it's A, B, or C, uh, we have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. Somebody could look at that one sentence and they could legitimately reasonably say, Carpe is saying that A, B, and C are the same things. Shame on Carpe. And that's, that's essentially what happened. The... Uh, the one sentence was taken out uh, without context. And then uh, I got, you know, international, (laughs) unintended, unwanted international media coverage. Uh, So, you know, Carpe compares A, B, and C. And it was not my intention to say that A, B, and C are the same thing. They're not, they're very different. But the central point was: uh, we got to stand up for our rights and freedoms, regardless of the banner, the slogan, the cause that is being put forward as a justification for violating our rights and freedoms.
0: Okay, so to with that being said, I mean, you 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 said in there that you regret the choice of adding in the the, the rainbow flag. Would you be comfortable uh, apologizing to the people who were offended and hurt by that being lumped in with those other two?
1: You know, I, I, I understand that people were hurt by it. And uh, I think that um, it's unfortunate that, you know, in this day and age, it is so easy for the the media, if they wanted to put a link to the speech, right? I even I especially asked CBC, well, can you put a link to the whole speech? Because I have yet to hear of of somebody that was hurt, that listened to the whole speech, or even listened to the, the preceding minute. Okay, you know, the speech was 20 minutes. I have yet to hear of somebody that was hurt and offended after listening to uh, the whole speech or the minute prior to the comment. People would not be hurt uh, in that context. So it's unfortunate that uh, we live in a 30-second soundbite society. We're all busy. Uh, I've heard of studies you know there are our attention span is now down to the level of goldfish you know uh, so everybody wants the quick sound bite so it's it's unfortunate uh, how that unfolded
0: do, do you regret that people were hurt by the way that it was presented
1: you know of, of, of course anybody is is uh, we're, I don't want to avoid the question but we are really running out of time um, yeah. uh, it's always unfortunate when 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 people get hurt uh, and and feelings get hurt all the time over all kinds of issues, right? People you pick any issue, abortion, uh the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, uh any number of issues. People say things and then other people get hurt by what people say. Uh it's unfortunate and it's uh getting hurt feelings is, is part of the burden of, of living in a free society where you have free expression.
0: Can can you I'm I, I'm I'm surprised uh the, the ask that I'll just be very blunt. Uh, I'm having a hard time understanding not a, or I'm having a hard time understanding why you can't simply say you're sorry that people were hurt. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're taking responsibility for the way that it was presented out of context. But if I if I go down the street and I accidentally bump into someone. It was not my intent to bump into them. And I might've been handing out food for homeless people and I just wasn't paying it, you know, full attention, didn't realize what would happen in that moment. I'm still going to look at that person that I bumped into by accident and say, I'm sorry.
1: Well, you know, now I'm getting into territory of, of repeating myself. Uh, people's feelings get hurt all the time, every day over things that they see and hear. And, and it's it's unfortunate, and that's that's a daily phenomenon that is taking place, and it's exacerbated when uh, when media, and I I don't count you as media because you're you know you're independent, but but generally <laughs> uh, you know or whether you're media or not, I mean that's uh, that that's neither here nor there. Um, in the code of journalistic ethics, and I'm not getting that name right, I think then there's two different codes, but professional ethics for journalists, um, one of the things that they're, they're required to do if you're reporting on a speech or an event or what happened is you, you give an accurate summary of, of the whole thing. And to kind of take out a pull quote and put that forward, I would expect that behavior from political parties, and I wouldn't fault them for it because politics is is hardball and you're trying to win votes and destroy the other side. Um, But, you know, for media to fixate on one comment and not talk about the speech, there's no media story that I read uh, or very few that say, you know, Carpe made the point that uh, we have to uh, uh, be vigilant to defend our rights and freedoms and not be, you know, hoodwinked by whatever slogan or banner or flag or whatever is, is, is the pretext for it. Media didn't report on the central point in the speech, and that's a violation of their own ethics. So, sure, and I take got, nothing I, away I, from that. Yeah.
0: But, but that I'm going to be like a, a Nate, very
1: <laughs> I'm willing. I'm willing to discuss it further. I I've got seven minutes to get to a place where it's going to take 15 minutes to drive there. I really have to go right now. I'm really sorry. Uh, I definitely uh, open happy to chat with you again. Is it okay, okay. to call it a day?
0: Uh, I, one more really quick one, and then we're done. Could we substitute out the UCP flag for the rainbow flag in that metaphor?
1: Oh God, this is. Why don't you ask me that as your opening question the next time that we talk? Because I'm I'm not running away from it, but I need to get to an appointment. Uh, some people are going to be very angry and disappointed. So okay. happy to address it next time we chat. Okay,
0: thank you very I've, much. i really got to go. You get your
1: All right, okay. have, well, a, have a great afternoon. Take care. Bye.
0: And that's it for another episode of the Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, please consider signing up to be one of our Patreon supporters at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com TheBreakdownAB. And if you're listening to the audio version of our podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review because it's those ratings and reviews that help us get the podcast in front of more people and into more ears. Thank you again for your time.